Welcome back to Trojan Talk. We are nearing the end of this 2019 season. It's not always been a fun season for USC fans, but it's been a fun season for us on this podcast. Myself and my co-host Max Brown have had a great run this year. A lot of good shows. I, I personally think that our last one, which posted on Wednesday, is, is one of our best. And I encourage It's a good one. Who, it's a good one for sure. Yeah, I, I encourage anyone who missed that to go back and listen as we really kind of evaluated, assessed, debated USC's very complex 2020 quarterback decision situation. And Max had some really candid insight and, and drew some comparisons to his experience in 2016 with Sam Darnold. And I think it's a great listen for USC fans. Um, before we get to today's show, though, I got to tell you about our special promos. That's right, promos. We got two. The good folks at Rivals have launched two generous holiday promos. Option one, you can save 50% off your first year and get a coupon for $49.50 to the Rivals Fan Shop. Rivals Fan Shop has like anything you need team gear-wise. If you want a USC jersey, hat, shirt, etc., etc., etc. So you get half off a subscription for the year and money to spend on, on USC gear or whatever gear in the Rivals Fan Shop. That's a great deal. Or option two... For the discounted rate of $75 for the first year of an annual subscription, you get even more bonus. You get $75 to spend on Adidas gear, either online or in any Adidas store. So go to Trojansports.com, look at the banner at the top of the page. There's a link with all the details for both those promos. Easy sign-up link. Choose the one that's best for you and get on board because I have a feeling that these next few weeks and months and whatever is going to be a very interesting time for USC football. A lot of action. Have, a lot of action. I have action. a hunch. With that. I, 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 think, uh, I think you might be right on that one. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Uh, that's not even one of my hot takes. That's just uh, just a hunch. <laughs> without, <laughs> without further delay, though, let me formally introduce you to my co-host all season, Max Brown, the former USC quarterback, the Trojans analyst, our Trojansports.com analyst this season. Been giving us great insight all year, and we're going to do it again for the USC-UCLA game today. Max, how are you? Doing well. Season flew by. It's crazy we're already at... One of the final ones. I'm sure we'll have some sort of postseason recap, but yeah, yeah. crazy. It's the, fi- the final game upon us. Yeah, and I think we should definitely uh, come back next week and kind of break down our MVPs and our reflections on the season and look ahead to next year. So this isn't goodbye. This isn't the end for the listeners, but this is our last game preview podcast, at least for now. And we'll get into all that. I want to start with the pomp and circumstance, though. I love rivalry games. It's what makes college football great. It's as unique to college sports as anything else. I mean, you know, pro sports have rivalries, but it just feels different in college. And this is obviously a big one for USC, one of the two big ones on the schedule, along with Notre Dame. Max, you went through a few of these UCLA game weeks. I just kind of take us behind the curtain, and does anything feel different during UCLA week, aside from the John McKay statue being covered in duct tape? To, to, yeah. to avoid uh, UCLA retribution. Is there anything different about these weeks? Yeah, I guess it's kind of what that symbolizes. I mean, you walk out of the locker room and then you're, the sword's duct taped and it kind of says, all right, it's a, it's a different uh, different week ahead of us. And that's all like kind of fun and games, I guess. But I think it's just all the extra like extra media attention, extra activity around the game. There's that burn the bear event. Uh, I'm blanking on the name, they, whatever they call that. But it just feels like there's a little bit more going on. It's not just your normal 
hey, we're, we're, we're going up for a road trip against Cal. Like, no, nah, there's some extra, extra stuff on the line. And I was not a kid from Southern California. So I think implications of the rivalry never hit me uh, yeah. as much as it did for maybe other guys that had buddies on the other side or had family members that were kind of house divided type stuff. But you definitely felt it. Uh, you definitely, yeah, kind of knew what was at stake. I know for me, UCLA, I mean, I, they offered me, but they came in late. Like I never was was crazy pump on them kind of thing. And I think that you almost like learn to hate those guys. And that paired with Notre Dame make for two great great rivalries as a USC football player. Yeah, you, you've mentioned before, you know, being from the, you know, the Washington area, Pacific Northwest, you didn't grow up in this rivalry. It wasn't ingrained in you. But could you sense anything from your teammates? Like, because there's a lot of guys in this locker room who played with people who are going to be across the line of scrimmage. A guy like Raylan Goforth, the freshman linebacker, was had uh, both those schools on his final list. His brother went to UCLA. He went to USC. That's an interesting story. Could, could you sense it from your teammates? Anything different? Yeah, I think everything was just heightened, just that one more notch. I'm not going to sit here and say it was like out of this world or it was a, a totally different uh, atmosphere. I think that's where probably the, the rivalry differs from a Notre Dame. Like Notre Dame, you really feel kind of, I don't know, like going on the road to their place, like two totally different cultures kind of thing. Yeah. Versus with the, with UCLA, everything just kind of takes an, a, a, a step up. I, I think there is some truth to... Uh, especially nowadays where it's kind of big brother, little brother. I mean, I know everyone probably hates saying that, and especially with SC not being back to where where we want them to be. It's not so much the case, but it definitely still feels that, all right, when it comes to football, SC is kind of big brother, and then UCLA is kind of little brother, always trying to like kind of kind of, kind of chip away at him kind of thing. But, yeah, everything's heightened, and I know when I was at SC, the banner image in the team room was like, we run LA. That was like the little, the, the quote. And I, I saw a picture of the, the team room now and I, they, they've changed it. It's not the same. It's like a SC logo or something like that. They've taken that down, which I always thought it was kind of weird saying we run LA as like the main message of your team room. It felt like SC had bigger fish to fry than just that. But yeah. nevertheless, that, that was that was the motto. And when you're staring at it subconsciously every day uh, in terms of going into meetings and whatnot, that kind of wears off on it that, hey, 364 days a year, that saying doesn't necessarily matter. But then that one day, it's, hey, let's gear up for it. And I think you also feel the tradition um, as well, just walking into the Rose Bowl or even the Coliseum to historic locations. And yeah, that paired with just the, the proximity of the rivalry, the alumni bases, that kind of butt heads, you definitely felt that as a player. Well, USC leads the all-time series 47-32-7 ties of course two of those wins were officially vacated but that's the ledger usc's won three of the last four but not last year last year everyone remembers ucla won 34 27 in the rose bowl we'll get to the specifics of that game and that still apply and kind of roll over to this matchup but i want to stay with some other topics first it's not been a great run for chip kelly through two years so far he's seven and 15 overall seven and nine in the Pac-12, not what UCLA fans thought they were getting when they hired the former Oregon Ducks coach. Max, if you are the AD at UCLA, how are you feeling about the Chip Kelly era right now? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. And I believe their, their AD situation, if SC's AD situation is weird, or I guess was weird a week ago, their AD situation is weird as well. They, uh, have a long-standing AD, I believe, who's announced that this this upcoming year will be his last year. So I believe his duties are done in May or uh, this summer, which is awkward timing for a football program. But 
Obviously, that kind of matches up with the end of the school year, I think, is the thought process. But in terms of football-wise, it's a little goofy because the new AD, you're not going to make a co- any sort of coaching change or anything like that. Like, I'm not trying to start controversy or anything. I think it's just to note. It's just an interesting dynamic there. But if I'm the AD, I think I'm not pumped, but I'm also wary that it could be a lot worse. I mean, I think at the end of September, we were talking about this UCLA team as where are they going to win a game? Like that was not that crazy of a thought process. When, the, when you lose to Cincinnati, who at the time was uh, Cincinnati, they weren't necessarily like a, a cusp-ranked team. You get blown out by Oklahoma, and then they uh, lost to San Diego State, I believe, as well. And so just ter- <clears throat> terrible losses, uh, or I guess not terrible losses necessarily, but just terrible showing in those performances. Uh, but then to kind of get some steam mid, midway through the season, they found themselves four wins. They're sitting at four and six. It's not good. Do not get me wrong. It is not good. They still have the chance to get, to get bowl eligibility, but I think this is all kind of coming to a peak next year where it'll be make or break for them next year. I think DTR will be an upperclassman. You got Chip Kelly year three, which that's kind of the magic year. So to me, I think it's not good right now, but it's not in full catastrophic panic mode where it easily could have been two months ago. So that's kind of where I net out with the Bruins. Uh, and with, with Chip Kelly, he, if he strikes the right chord, he, and he gets in a rhythm with that program. Uh, as we saw for a few weeks there this year, uh, they can piece some things together and maybe do some things. But certainly right now, sitting here, uh, November 21st of, of 2019, the Bruins aren't where they, uh, they want to be. Yeah, I, I mean, there was kind of the sentiment at the end of last season when they started so slow last year and then got a few wins late, obviously beat USC, that maybe that was going to be the turning point. They're going to build off that, and then they do the same thing this year. I don't know. If, 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 if I'm a UCLA fan, I don't know that I have a ton of optimism about the big picture with Chip Kelly. Remember, you know, his ascent at Oregon was largely tied to innovation and being ahead of the curve offensively and bringing new stuff to the table and, and, and kind of helping to, to, to pull college football into this new era of offense. And he's not really in that position now. So I, I don't know what competitive advantage they're going to have there. He's never been a, a dynamic recruiter. Depending on how you looked at it at Oregon, either you gave him praise for getting a lot out of you know three-star prospects and, and the few four-stars he got, or, or you said he's just not a good recruiter. But I, I don't know what you point to and say, this is the reason why it's going to click for UCLA moving forward, aside from guys getting older and just having more time in the system. But I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm unconvinced. Yeah, I think you talk about guys getting older. They the turnover in their program has been crazy. I don't have the exact number on me right now, that's, but like that's true. Yep. No, yeah, but like it's something like forty-five guys with new jerseys this year, or something like that, or like I, like whether it's transfers, whether it's freshmen, whether it's walk-ons, whatever. It's like some crazy number. That, that's not the exact number, but I just know that was a a talking point was just the amount of new bodies they have in their program, and I think it's always interesting, right? This is a USC podcast, so our perspective is going to come from a USC angle and our coach has the hottest seat in America and so when that's kind of the gauge you're used to week in and week out I mean the UCLA seat is not nearly as hot as that but when you kind of put it in the rankings of like all right we're on a national landscape like what other coaches are in trouble 
I mean, UCLA is definitely up there. I think in the conference, I probably put Kevin Sumlin in just a little bit higher hot seat. I think the fact that they weren't able to get anything done with Khalil Tate, who at the time when he took him over was a, a Heisman candidate, the fact that they were not even able to take another step and took a couple steps back, his seat's hotter to me. But after that, it's Chip Kelly at UCLA in terms of hot seats in the conference. So don't get me wrong. If I'm UCLA, by no means am I content. By no means am I, uh, am I happy with how things have gone. I just don't think it's necessarily c- uh, catastrophe mode like it could have been and, and people kind of thought it would be a couple months ago. I remember interviewing one of their uh, one of their beat writers and he had like nothing good to say. He's like, I've never, like the, the, the program's dead. There, there's, there's no juice to it. We're not like, we're not seeing things all that. Like, I don't know what's going on with DTR. And uh, that's a subject I'm, I'm sure we'll probably get into, but I, I think it could be worse. And uh, 2020 is going to be make or break for Chip. Well, so aside from the just the roster overhaul and transition, and, and not the step on the our, our game preview, which is coming up, uh, how would you summarize if someone asked you why has it not worked so far? Um, I I think one is it's it's not one reason. I think their overall just level of talent has taken a full step down from when I was there. You talk about, I made the comment the other day to someone, the fact that UCLA, I mean, they were, they were, they were very good when I was there, but that Brent Huntley team, like that was their opportunity. SC was we down, we were, we were like eight, an eight-win team, that kind of thing, eight, nine-win team. That UC, those UCLA teams were loaded. You had, uh, you had uh, Huntley, you had bo- both Minnesota Vikings linebackers, Kendrick, um, you had Eddie Vanderdos, Miles Jack. Uh, you had all sorts of guys out there. I mean, the NFL, the guys that are still playing in the NFL. So that, to, when you kind of put that UCLA team, like the 2013 through 15 UCLA teams, up against kind of where, uh, or probably 13 to 14, up against to where they are in 2019, you just don't. When you turn on the tape, you just don't see the level of talent there. DTR is not playing very well. They're not. They were good up front. I felt like they had some NFL offensive tackles, had some NFL defensive tackles, uh, with uh, and some linebackers, Kenny Young, uh, and that's just not the talent level they have now. So you can get into X's and O's, you can get into coaches, but they just don't have the dudes they had once upon a time. Yeah. Well, the, the Bruins are four and six overall, four and three in the conference. Entering this game, USC of course is seven and four, and six and two has won four of its last five games and trying to finish strong. Um, it, it's also going to be senior day for USC, and it's, been, it's a small senior class. They only have eight scholarship seniors, and one of those, Jordan Iosefa, is coming back next year. So it's, it's seven scholarship seniors and a number of walk-ons that they're saying goodbye to uh, in the pregame ceremony tomorrow. But when you look at it in the scope of what USC has back and what they're losing, I mean, that's the reason for excitement for this program is that they're not losing much. Go down this list. Michael Pittman we've talked a lot about in the last podcast. Obviously a huge loss, but that's maybe the deepest position on the team. They'll recover. You, you would love to have Michael Pittman forever, but it's, it's not a position where they can't rally and recover. John Houston, the veteran linebacker who is uh, polarizing with fans, but, but you've been very high on, and I know Clancy Pendergast is always very high on this trust that he – Whatever you think, he's been a, uh, a fixture for a while on that defense. That's one to replace. Uh, and, and then Christian Rector, the retro senior defensive end, who has not had his best season this year. It's due largely to that week two high ankle sprain that kind of changed the whole course of his, of his 2019 season. 
and, and then Drew Richmond, the right tackle. Those are the, the four seniors who have actually contributed this year. The other ones would be Dominic Davis, who's been everything from a cornerback to a wide receiver to a running back on, on the depth chart this season, and Clayton Bradley and Jacob Daniel, who are reserve offensive linemen who have not played much. Uh, Bradley not at all due to injury. So it's really four guys in terms of the seniors that, that they're losing. That's a low number for a college football program. Yeah, low number, and I'm trying to think back. I mean, that that class, uh, you talk about recruiting, and I'm sure I wouldn't be surprised if you or someone kind of does does an article on it, but, like, looking back on where they were recruited, they were a super high recruited class, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. I remember the claim to fame with that class uh, when I was on the team was that's the best uh, linebacker recruiting class since the Malaluga – Brian Cushing, uh, Clay Matthews class. And obviously everyone kind of went their own ways. The guys they were referring to were John Houston, Porter Gustin, Cam Smith, and then uh, I'm blanking on his name, the guy that got kicked out of school as a freshman, uh, the guy from Utah. But either way, I think obviously a good good linebacking class, but not up to the standards of the guys I, I mentioned before. But yeah, it's kind of unheard of. I mean, uh, only seven seniors, you know, get one back. Uh, and your point about me being high on John Houston, uh, I see what everyone's seeing. I, I don't think he's an elite linebacker. I, I'm not putting him there. But I just, I don't, I, I the whole, oh my gosh, what's he doing out there? The whole getting on his size, that whole thing. I'm not totally on that camp. I thought it's been clear as day since day one that they've needed his leadership, that that's been a position where you got a lot of young guys. John Houston is no Cam Smith. I'm, I'm with you there. But uh, he is not, if you're going to get on the, the defense, he's by no means the issue and in, 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 in kind of where I'm pointing the finger. But yeah, I, I think your point about being excited about the future. I mean, we've talked all year kind of about this freshman class, the ma- the main playmakers there. And anytime you're re- you're returning, I mean, most of your offensive line, just about everyone in your offensive line, uh, you're returning your quarterback, you're returning some playmakers. Yes, you lose your biggest one, but you still have some great ones behind them. And then we've talked about this stable of backs, how we have four or five running backs. Usually, I mean, you're, you're counting on one of them to leave. The fact that they're all coming back is kind of unheard of, but tons, of, tons to be excited about. That's not to mention the secondary. That's been a young group. We've kind of got accustomed to them being uh, quite good when they were a liability early on in the year. The, the, uh, an, an entire offseason for that group, look out country and look out Pac-12 because that's a special group that uh, is only going to get better with time. Yeah, you mentioned the, the recruiting class and, and when they came in, so most of those guys are holdovers from the 2015 class, which was the number one ranked recruiting class in the country. John Houston, yeah, I knew it was up there. Yeah, number yeah. one. Yep. And there's, it's, it's funny to think now, like, Rasheem Green was in that class too, and he's been gone for a while now. But John Houston was a five-star linebacker in that class. Uh, Christian Rector was actually only a three-star defensive end. He's gotten a lot out of that. Dominic Davis was a four-star running back. And... Jacob Daniel was actually a four-star defensive tackle, moved to the offensive line. And so you, you go down the list there, and that's kind of the hype they came in with. And five years later, it's done. You know, some other guys from the 14 class. But we also have to factor in, do you think any underclassmen leave? And, and, and that's the unknown right now. And the guys that you'd be looking at are Tyler Vaughns, Marlon Tupelotu, Jay Tufeli, and I don't think that the defensive linemen leave. I expect both of them back. Vaughn's is the one that I look at, and we asked him this week, actually, and he, you know, understandably didn't want to answer it and said he hasn't thought about it. They'll think about it after the season. That's probably the case. Clay Helton said he's going to file for an NFL draft evaluation for Vaughn's, 
and find out where he stands, and they'll kind of go from there. Do you expect any of those guys to join this group and, and be out the door? I do not. In fact, I, I expect uh, Vaughns to come back. I think, I mean, I played with both Pitt and Vaughns, and I remember that year, it wasn't controversial, but I remember it was kind of a decision of like, okay, Pitt was kind of 1A and Vaughns was 1B. Like, they were right there, and Pitt had more of a special teams role his true freshman year, so that's why he did not redshirt, and he was kind of in the action a little bit. Uh, and then Tyler Vaughns, he elected to redshirt. And me and Tyler Vaughns, uh, we were money on scout team. When I got benched, I remember uh, he was my go-to target. And we, were, we were dicing up dicing up Clancy's defense at that time, and everyone kind of knew he was next up. And Vaughns, like, he could have easily played that year, but it was just kind of depth chart-wise. You had Juju, you had Darius Rogers, you had uh, Daquan Hampton and Isaac Whitney, both NFL guys. So you, you, you had no need to play him. And so, once again, we've, we've gone down this route with Keenan Christian. Like, you never know what's going to happen four or five years down the road. But at the time, could have rushed him into action to get a few snaps a game back in 2016. You don't, and you allow him to have an extra year in 2020. And I'd expect him to come back. I think he's probably going to look at his good buddy, Michael Pittman, and realize how special of a senior year Pitt had, and maybe he can do something like that. I think the competitor in him has probably got to look at it and say, hey, I can go out there and be the number one dude next year. And I know as I say that, people are going to say, well, what about Amon Ross St. Brown? Yeah, I mean, Amon Ross will be the, probably the number one guy, but in terms of outside veteran receivers, who's I mean, maybe he wears the C on his jersey, that kind of role, that that, that to me could maybe be where, where, somewhere where, uh, where Tyler Vaughn slips in. But I know Tyler enough. We're not uh, like best of buds or anything, but I, I know him well enough that I, I, he reminds me of a kid who uh, could, could would really cherish a senior year and the opportunity to kind of get one more shot at college football and the NFL will be there when uh, when the time comes. So I'd expect him to come back. And then for J2 Fele and Marlon Tupelotu, I've seen a couple drafts that have J up there. I, I think it's probably of a next year decision. I don't know the kid and his wiring. I mean, that's where it comes down to the most. I think a lot of these kids... Uh, it's how they're wired. I, like for me, my class, I mean, Sua Craven since like day one was talking, hey, I'm, I'm three years and gone kind of thing. And yeah. sure enough, three years was up and he was out of there. Versus some guys are more wired for the long haul and whatnot. And that's kind of their, their moxie and their MO. And uh, it sounds like Jay's probably falls into the ladder. So I'd expect those guys to come back. And you better believe no matter what the coaching situation is, that head coach, his first recruiting job is going to be recruiting those guys to come back. I remember when Sark got the job when I was there in 2015. That's what he said. He said, yeah, I can go on the road and go recruit some high school kids. But my first job recruiting is recruiting the guys that are on the cusp for me. And at the time, that was like Hayes Pollard and uh, Xavier Grimble. Grimble elected to leave when people thought he could come back and, and play tight end. But that that's going to be that's going to be a factor at play but I think this this team's loaded for big things in 2020 uh, and people have every reason to be excited especially with those guys uh, likely coming back well in that 2016 recruiting class Tyler Vaughns was one of only two five stars it was him and Jack Jones who we saw at Arizona State a couple weeks ago I kind of posted on the board some thoughts about Vaughns and I could be totally wrong here I, I think everything you're saying makes a lot of sense I just I feel like he's been the same player the last two years, which is very productive. Uh, I'm actually a Tyler Vaughn's fan. I'm not knocking him. I think he makes incredible catches on the sideline. But I don't know that there's a next level to his game next year. I think he, he kind of got to this place of productivity pretty quickly and has been the same guy. And so how much can this draft stock really change next year? And if it can't, then you have to factor in the risk of an injury where it could actually go down if he – has some bad luck and gets hurt next year. That's something you got to factor into the equation. So that's the only reason why I 
tend to think that there might be a chance if he gets a decent evaluation from the NFL that he takes it and goes. But I can certainly see everything you're saying, and um, I, I don't have any personal insight into his mentality or thought process on this, so I'm, I'm really just speculating and kind of laying out the case. But I wouldn't be surprised either way, I guess. Yeah, I think for me, I'm probably kind of with the mindset of if there is a coaching change and, and that happens, there's probably a lot of optimism uh, kind sure. of about what, 20, what 2020 could hold. And as a senior, being part of it, maybe the, the team that like sets the foundation, I think there's a lot of like legacy and almost outside of football questions uh, or factors that I could see him buying into. But I, I, I'm kind of with you. I, I feel like there is an element of like Tyler Vaughn's is the receiver who he's going to be. But does he value that extra year of college football? Does he say, hey, with Michael Pittman out of it, maybe that that that, uh, that brings more more balls my way? I mean, like we've talked about, SC is just going to reload at receiver. So I don't envision that being the case. But I, he, just, he just reminds me of a guy who I don't necessarily think of him as a guy who's chomping at the bit for the NFL. And don't get me wrong, we all are. We all were trying to get to the league. But there's a certain type of guy that's different and uh, – I could just see him coming back for a fifth year and, and trying to leave that uh, that senior legacy like he saw his uh, his good bud Michael Pittman do this year. I did leave out one more underclassman who has a real decision to make, and that's left tackle Austin Jackson, who seems to be getting some pretty good buzz among the draft prognosticators as a guy who could potentially be rising up the ranks. He's had a nice season. So that's another one to consider. And I don't know where I come in on that one. It will really depend on the, on the draft grade he gets. Again, Clay Helton said he can file with the NFL for up to five underclassmen to get feedback. And I can imagine that Austin Jackson will be one of those five. And it will really depend on what he hears back from them. He would be a tough loss. They really don't have a lot of tackle depth. Like I mentioned, you're already losing Drew Richmond, the right tackle. You assume that Jalen McKenzie would be sliding out to right tackle next year because you have some depth at guard. That would be a real question if Austin Jackson leaves. So that's one that Trojan fans and coaching staff, whatever coaching staff that is, should prioritize in, in their hopes to retain. All right. Well, we've been bouncing around a bunch of different topics, but we are here to talk about the game, the Victory Bell Showdown, USC, UCLA in the Coliseum on Saturday. And we have our analyst, Max Brown, to break it down for you like nobody else. Max, let's dive into it. Let's start with the UCLA offense. And you know what? Actually, let's start broader. Let's start broader. Let's start with their season. And we mentioned earlier the slow start, and they kind of started to pick it up. What's the biggest difference you've seen in them in this kind of last month or so where they've, they've started to kind of put some things together? Yeah, they really got some mojo in the running game. And for SC fans, they're going to be like, oh, yep, here we go again, Joshua Kelly 2018. But to me, that's the biggest thing is they had nothing going offensively early. DTR wasn't doing wasn't doing good, and he hasn't necessarily been groundbreaking. But Joshua Kelly's really kind of come into his own. I think I made the reference to it yeah. in last podcast or, or two podcasts ago. But going into the season, the two, the two premier backs in the conference were Zach Moss and Eno Benjamin. By, by most people's uh, standards. And I saw an article the other day that kind of uh, mentioned Kelly with those guys. I think uh, I'm not sure if, if I'm to that point necessarily yet. Uh, Eno Benjamin has been fumbling the ball a lot, so that's uh, definitely not a good thing. Um, but point being is their running attacks kind of come along. And uh, for SC, that's going to be something they have to have to be wary of. But 
the running game paired with the guy, a little confidence there, winning some games, able to put up some points. Uh, DTR had a very tough start. I mean, he uh, started the year all over uh, Sports Center, not top 10 with that fumble he had on the road at Cincinnati. From there to where he is now, uh, it's not groundbreakingly different, but he's able to make some throws and, and do some of the things that people uh, that left people so optimistic a year ago this time of, hey, he's really coming on, that kind of thing. Um, so I think the run game is the big part, overall confidence of the team, and that young defense is, has done some things, uh, but by no means uh, is it groundbreaking or anything. Well, it's, I, I want to save the Josh Kelly discussion for the next segment because we have a lot to cover there based off last year's game. Let's talk about Dorian Thompson-Robinson, the sophomore quarterback, has passed for 2,056 yards, 17 touchdowns, 10 picks. He's also rushed, rushed for three touchdowns. What has kind of been the evolution of his game, his progression as a quarterback to this point? Yeah, evolution. I'll uh, I'll date it back to 2018. I mean, he came on. He kind of burst onto the scene as the hotshot, true freshman, dual threat quarterback. That was like the perfect marriage with Chip Kelly a year ago. He got the starting nod because Welton Spate, their pocket passer, their grad transfer, got injured. So he was kind of forced into duty. Hey, we, we know that we know that scene. A true freshman forced into duty, uh, and he struggled initially. But then towards the end of the year, he really came on, and I uh, actually was impressed with his kind of month of November last year, and it left people very optimistic about kind of what was lying ahead, and if he had a full off season to kind of grow in that offense, like what would he look like, and more so than just what he could do with his legs, like his ability to really throw the rock and work a progression. But then you get to week one of this year and you just did not see that that development. And that progressed for a few weeks where you're, you're just not seeing that growth from him. And uh, now I think he's able to piece it together. Um, when, I, when I think of it, when I think of him uh, and how I'm breaking him down, it's a similar light to kind of Steven Montez where – uh, not in terms of skill set, but where in terms of when the light's on and things are clicking, they are very, very good. And they, are, they make defensive coordinators very nervous. But then when the light's off, it is bad. It is catastrophic. It is, it, it is not good. And he's had some, some bad turnovers. I mentioned the one versus Cincinnati. They, they had a ton of turnovers a week ago against Utah, and that's kind of Utah's MO. They have one of the best defenses in the country. Uh, but I think big picture, uh, it's, it's similar with, it, with, with the team. It's not as bad as where we thought it was in September. He's done some good things. They had that huge performance against Washington State. They had some, they had some impressive wins against, uh, like a Stanford was a great win. He played well, did some things there. They had an impressive win against ASU, who was a quality team. I mean, they beat ASU by 10, and we barely got past them. So I mean, it's not like they're 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 a slouch, but I think it's it's you got to take the good you you take the good and you take the bad with DTR. Right now, the good is he's lethal with his legs when he's on and, and anticipating throws. He can make the throws when they're there, but when he's off, you get some bad turnovers, you get some bad mistakes, and that's if you're Clancy in this defense, that's what that that's the Dorian you're hoping you get uh, on Saturday. Yeah, you mentioned that some of the high spots in the wins. They, they reel off three straight wins. They beat Stanford 34-16, Arizona State 42-32, like you mentioned, by 10 points, and Colorado 31-24. And then it all came crashing down last week as they got walloped by Utah, 49-3. They had five turnovers in that game, uh, got outgained 536 to 269. Is that just a case of Utah overmatching them in most regards or or what was your takeaway from UCLA's performance there yeah I think it definitely was a, an element of Utah overmatching them I think it wasn't as bad necessarily as you think I mean 
uh, after that first quarter, it's it's seven three. They're kind of hanging in there. But then to me, you mentioned the turnovers, and you had uh, two interceptions. I think there may have even been a third, if I'm not mistaken, and then two fumbles as well. And like two those picks, are killers. Two picks and three fumbles. Okay, yeah, two picks, three fumbles, um, and that's just not going to get it done. Anytime you put the ball on the turf three times, especially when a UCLA offense that has to rely on the run, like you got no shot versus Utah. So I think if you take away those turnovers or let's say, hey, even cut those in half and let's say, I mean, take two away and let's say you still have three turnovers, which is a bad – like that's a bad performance, I think it could have been a little little, little closer. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was 49-3, so I'm not talking it's groundbreaking, but I don't think it's the absolute embarrassment that it was but I think this is a Utah defense that just straight up got after UCLA. And what Chip's going to do is uh, some nuanced stuff. You mentioned he was cutting edge at Oregon. Well, now the whole college football world and the whole football world's doing the no-huddle tempo stuff. So that's not his, his, new, his new age. What he does now is he does a lot of like shifts and motions. And uh, last week he saw some triple option, which is just a different look. And that's kind of maybe his new angle of trying to be innovative. It's not nearly as innovative as the uh, – run a play every 10 seconds type thing but that's how he's going to try to keep teams off balance it did not work against utah a team that's known for being disciplined known for kind of having everything in line but that's one thing with this ucla team if they can get this usc defense kind of jumping around get their eyes in the wrong in the wrong spot get out of gaps they have the ability to kind of break a big run with joshua kelly or get dtr on the edge and do some things where that's what makes this team dangerous well, that's a good segue. Let's, let's have the Joshua Kelly talk. Last year, of course, he goes 40 carries, 289 yards, and two touchdowns versus USC, which was the most rushing yards by any player on either team in the history of this rivalry series. It was the story of the game. He's had a nice year this year, too. 939 yards, 10 touchdowns, 4.8 for carry. But this week, we were, we were talking about last year. We were asking the coaches and the players what happened last year and what is the lesson to take from that. And Christian Rector was pretty candid. He goes, we were misaligned so many times in that game. I just feel like we have a better game plan this time. And then we asked uh, defensive line coach Chad Kauha'a, and he obviously wasn't here last year, but he's like, yeah, I watched it, I watched it. He didn't want to be critical of – the guy he replaced or if Clancy the game plan last year but he basically said you know that there's a lot of stuff they do before the snap and we've been working all week on it and the biggest key is just getting lined up properly just identifying it and getting lined up properly and going from there and he said early in the week they were having some trouble with whatever the scout team was replicating in that regard the defensive line was having some issues but he felt they had progressed through the week kind of give a Give us the analyst uh, breakdown of of what they are trying to do pre-snap and why that's so hard for defenses or can be so hard. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, yeah, the whole reason the whole reason teams shift and like why you would do that um, is you get to the line and the defense is forced to kind of set the strength and kind of where guys are lined up, where guys are. Uh, what gaps people are in. Uh, every time, every defensive call has a specific front, and the front is determined on the strength of the formation. And then when you shift and bring two, maybe three, maybe four guys to to one side or switch switch the sides they're on, that totally changes um, a, a guy like John Houston's call. John Houston is key this game in terms of getting people lined up. That's why for all you guys that hated on John Houston all year, 
this is the game where his, his leadership, his uh, ability to communicate is so important because you don't want uh, a freshman, a Kanai Malga, or especially with uh, EA likely being out, if it's a Raylan Goforth or whoever it is, a young guy in there forced, forced to kind of get everyone lined up, that's what makes it so t- tough. And uh, with defensive football, everyone's responsible for a gap. Everyone has a responsibility. And if you leave one gap untapped, uh, that, that's kind of that's where that's where UCLA punishes you. But you pair the shifts, which sw- switches the strengths, which is the calls, and then the motions and having to worry about both and communicating and make sure everyone's kind of aware of what's going on. That's what makes it tough. Oh, oh, by the way, also having to keep track of kind of rush lanes and a dual threat quarterback. Uh, it's definitely nuanced. A bunch of different teams do it. I know when I was at Pitt, it was kind of, and St- like Stanford does it. Stanford has their uh, downhill, run the ball right at you style to it. UCLA's is a little bit more uh, spread oriented, but this is, this is the new wave Chip Kelly where it's trying to get one guy out of place and then punish you in the gap that he's responsible for. All that said, UCLA ranks 79th in the country in scoring, 26.7 points per game, and 78th in total offense at 392.7 yards per game. Overall, Max, if you're Clancy Pendergast in this defense, how concerned or worried are you by this matchup? Not, 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 not much at all. I think the, the key for me with Clancy is make this simple. I mean, SC has the talent level over UCLA. You don't have to get cute. You don't have to do anything groundbreaking. So I would keep, especially fronts, especially the defensive alignments, do as little switching as possible. I know sometimes defensive coordinators want to have it perfect where you have a Hunter Eccles in a perfect rush position or something like that. You know, for me to for me this game, just get in your gaps. Have a hat in every single gap. SC has the skill level, a bunch of all these guys. But then as I say that. I mean, Clancy's MO, you're not going to change your defensive coordinator's MO overnight. He wants to bring heat. He wants to bring pressure. And so there's going to be pieces to that, and that just makes it all the more important that when a Talanoa Hufunga is blitzing off the edge, he's responsible for a gap. That means everyone else is shifting down accordingly. You can't get out of your gap. You can't have your hat on the wrong side because, I mean, really the only way uh, UCLA wins this game is if they get big plays. I'm not confident in this t- this offense marching down the field. When DTR is your quarterback, I mean, you're bound. If you have 10, 12, 14 play drives, he's bound to probably make a st- mistake at, at some point. And Joshua Kelly is so much of their offense. I'm impressed with his durability and his ability to kind of ru- run, the, run the ball every single week. But uh, if they're counting on him to get – Five, six, seven yards, or five, six, seven carries a possession. That's going to be a that's going to be a recipe for a for an offense that becomes gassed in the second half. Yes. So flipping the field, though, the real concern for UCLA is its defense this year, where it's just not been very good across the board. They're 111th in scoring defense, 33.7 points per game, 105th in total defense, 442 yards a game and 123rd in pass defense, giving up 298.4 yards a game. What does USC do especially well of late? (laughs) Passing the ball. How ideal of a matchup is this for the Trojans and young Keaton Slovis? Yeah, this is an ideal matchup. I mean, you got to be licking your chops if you're Graham Harrell in in this offense. I mean, I'd expect a big game. I mean, I I referenced that Washington State air raid game. I don't have the score right in front of me, uh, but it was like whatever, 70 to 71 or whatever that was. I mean, there's points to be be had uh, against this defense. But, yeah, you talk about a secondary. uh, They only have four picks all year, which – 
especially kind of early on when you would hopefully ideally get after some some young quarterbacks, some lesser teams. Uh, I know Cincinnati didn't end up being that way, but only have four picks, uh, which is not a lot at all. So they, they struggle that, that in that, that regard. They're actually solid up front. They're not terrible up front. They uh, allow 143 yards rushing a game, uh, and they get 24 sacks. So that, that sack number, if you're trying to get optimistic – if you're a UCLA fan, which I know no one here is, but if you're a UCLA fan, that 24 sacks element, you see Calgate, I believe it was three sacks a week ago. Maybe that's your recipe for kind of getting after getting after this USC team. But this secondary, you can get after this secondary. Their, their top guy is Darnay Holmes, a corner. He's the only guy with the pick. They got a, a Jay Shaw out there. But to me, it's just... It's just dudes. It's no one, uh, no one out of this world, and certainly no one that can match up with Michael Pittman, Amon Ross, St. Browns, Tyler Vaughns, and now I'll I'll uh, I'll put uh, Drake London in that in those sentences anytime I say that uh, moving forward. Got to, got to. All right. So let me ask you this question then: If UCLA is to win this game, what happens? Let's see. Keaton Slovis has a snowball effect turnover game, which we've seen uh, we've seen before. That, that's the first one. You get up, you you become opportunistic. I think you need at least I'm gonna say at least two big breakaway runs uh, for Joshua Kelly. So at uh, at a sorts where that you kind of gash this USC defense, and then what else? I'm trying to think. That, that, that's the blueprint. Then you need some goofy penalties. You need some goofiness on, on SC side. I think um, if I'm UCLA, I'm definitely doing the drop eight mentality and taking my chances with this rushing attack. I mean, Stephen Carr was not fully healthy. It didn't, it didn't feel like a week ago. And Keaton Christian, while I like him, I, I think you got to pick your battles as a defensive coordinator, and, you're just, and you'll say, hey, I'll take my chances with 23, 23 uh, uh, carrying the rock and – I'll defend Pitt out there, but to me, it's a drop eight mentality, and then it's a DTR getting out on the edge. I think if he gets some plays and he gets rhythm and he gets rolling, his ceiling is still crazy, crazy high. I mean, he can still make plays if he gets rolling early. To me, that first quarter, those first two drives are huge for him. And whether he can use his legs, if uh, if Chip is can, can can be creative with how they scheme offensively, maybe getting him on the edge. I think all those factors need to come into play. And I think we all we all can agree that you can't have another 250 yard rushing game by Joshua Kelly. That's for sure. If uh, if USC is going to win this game, yeah. All right. Well, let's do it. Let's do the predictions. I'm going to let you start this week. Predictions. Uh, you got yours fired up and ready. I'm. I got to. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll I'll set the tone here. Yeah, I'm, set the tone I, for me. I am expecting a very thorough USC win again. I think. Points will be scored on both sides. I'm going Trojans 42-21. 42-21. All right, I'll I'll go. Uh, there was that. I'll go uh, forty. I'll go forty-eight to thirteen. I think it'll be a blowout. And I, and I think I just think matchup wise, this is tough for UCLA. I think. I mean we. We, we kind of talked about the nitty-gritty of how the teams match up and kind of depth chart-wise, but when you take a step back, you talk about a UCLA team who just got absolutely pummeled by Utah. They're not feeling too great, right? They're kind of limping to the finish line type, type thing. 
Well, SC, SC is not limping to the finish line. They finished strong, winning what, trying to win like five out of six or whatever it is. Yep. Start three and three, get the goofiness behind them, and then kind of trying to finish strong. I, I just think the moods of the, two, the of the two programs are totally different. If a year ago they were both kind of dull and it was both kind of just an eh mood, this year, while it's not over the moon for SC, it just feels a lot more positive. It feels like this SC offense is going to line up in the first snap and say we are going to absolutely get after this defense and I think that'll carry over to USC's defense we've seen USC's defense be different home versus away that energy that fuel and I also think there's something you said about this is the last hurrah this is senior day for for SC it's the last game of the season uh, before the bowl game Uh, rather than limp into the finish line like I said for UCLA I think this is a USC team that wants to make a statement and I also think it's a USC team that uh they know the deal, right? They know the situation their head coach is in. But I think most of those guys on that team really like Clay Helton. Know kind of, hey, wins and losses aside, that they, they like what Clay Helton's done um, for, for them. I think most guys, not, maybe not all guys, but most guys are like that. And they want to send him out on a, on a positive note if that is what the inevitable future is, which uh, I know a lot of us kind of think that's the case. Well, we'll, we'll – get to that here in a second even though we talked about it a lot in the wednesday podcast we're gonna have to touch on it again but let me ask you this before we, we do you know going to last weekend we thought there was at least some chance that ucla could upset utah and and shuffle this big this uh, pac-12 standings up a little bit that clearly didn't happen is there any chance now that the Utes stumble against arizona or colorado the rest of the way zero chance um <laughs> yeah. i mean the, the Utes, I mean, you talk about this is this is bigger than 2019 for Utah. I mean, this is Utah's season. I mean, I think you can kind of feel in that program that they know this is their year. I see, I mean, that team is locked in. They are playing with a chip on their shoulder. I mean, of all the top, tens, all of the top 10 teams in the country, I know LSU has some impressive wins, and I know Ohio State hasn't lost by uh, – by, uh, or hasn't won uh, by less than 20 this year. But Utah is blowing people out of the water. They have a chip on their shoulder, and they know that they're – they know what's on, on, on the line. They, they know that, I mean, all past point towards a Pac-12 South lined up against Utah, winner in mentality. I just think uh, there's no way they're slowing down outside of something goofy. Tyler Huntley's been money all year. Zach Moss is healthy and rolling. That defense is gearing up and, and really attacking opposing offenses. So I expect him to finish strong and – it's an outside shot, but uh, SC fans, I would not expect to uh, to go to Santa Clara in uh, in a couple of weeks. I'm with you. I'm with you. Which which brings us to again the state of affairs, and if we're both right with our prediction of a blowout game, that means USC finishes the season with two of its most thorough performances of the year, wins five of its last six games, gets to eight and four. I mean. Again, my feelings haven't changed. I still expect a coaching change, but I can tell you that the people in the fan base who have been pining for this change for so long are starting to feel a little apprehensive about it. There was a column by Pete Thamel of Yahoo on Wednesday about just how expensive this move would be. You know, USC being a private university doesn't have to disclose contracts and whatnot so there's it's always a little cloudy as to what those numbers are pete than will put it at 20 million to buy out clay helton and that, his that's staff the number that's the number i've heard as well a, and do a reset i don't have any reason to, to doubt that number max do you, 
has anything changed for you since we last talked a few days ago about your expectation? Yeah, no, I've uh, I heard I heard that twenty million dollar number a, a few weeks ago, and that's that's a lot of dough. And I, I just once again for fans, I mean, just all the other stuff going on with the program or with the school at large, it's a factor at play. I don't think it'll change anything when it's all said and done, but I think it's a factor at play. I just think this whole thing. If you're a fan, that's kind of I mean. Like like if if SC wins this game and they go eight and four and they potentially win a bo- uh, a bowl game and go nine and four and they're sitting at a ranked team like they're sitting probably I don't know mid to 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 high teens I think it's just a, it's a good reminder not to go professor uh, professor lecture mode but just it does absolutely nothing to get on this negative bandwagon of ha- ha- like a fire the coach kind of early on in the season and it feels like that's kind of been the mold for. Uh, for a lot of this SC fan base, and I know I'm probably I'll probably get pushback for that, but I just think it. I mean, it's a good reminder. That, like, I mean, yeah, a lot of a lot of things didn't stack up in its favor, but it is kind of crazy when we sit back here and say, well, it really wasn't that bad of a of a season. And don't get me wrong, I know the standard, I know what you're saying, but in, in the grand scheme of of what happened, I mean, you go five and seven a year ago, which I know that's part of the dang problem. But to take a step this year, you would have thought the world was falling about three weeks ago, and so. I don't know. I just kind of put that out there to, to maybe not be a prisoner of the moment, but uh, don't get me wrong. Clay Hilton uh, hasn't hasn't done the, the necessary things to, I think, uh, keep this job. You talk about he's, what, year four or so? Um, you're sitting at five and seven last year. You take a step this year, but you're still only eight and four at best. Yes, injuries happen and whatnot, but I just think the writing's been on the wall for quite some time. I think the whole point of why I bring that up is I think it was a little premature, especially in his when people were kind of talking about it. I mean, the beginning of last year type thing, to me, that does you no good. There was no way he was going to get fired week one of last year. So why talk about it when it didn't, it might not happen for a two full or like 18 months later. To me, that's just wasting time and just complaining just to complain. But uh, nevertheless, I think uh, the writing's on the wall. And yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, as I went on my own rant on the on the Wednesday pod, you know, this is not about this season. This season, you, you can point to a lot of things and, and say, I, it's hard to be too critical of this season. Given the injuries, given everything else, given the fact that you have most of this team coming back next year, a freshman quarterback coming back next year, the way they finished, I mean, I mean, credit Clay Helton for keeping this team together and for them playing their best ball down the stretch. So if we were just evaluating this season, we wouldn't be having this conversation. This is not even just about the 5-7 and seven record last year. It's about everything that that represented and created with, again, them being ranked in the 70s in recruiting, 11th of uh, 12 Pac-12 teams in recruiting, the empty seats in the Coliseum, just the overall sentiment of the fans – I, you know, I, I had to say on the message board this week, I, there are people already reacting to what hasn't happened. They're, they're like, if, if Mike Bone keeps Clay Helton, he's got to go. I'm like, let's just see what happens. But, but that's how tense people are right now about this. And it's just going to be really hard to sell excitement for the program, not for the team, the players. There's definitely excitement for the talent, the players, but for the program and its direction by keeping the status quo. And that's just the reality of where things are. And I just, I would be surprised if Mike Bone took this job to come in and have his defining move be in direct opposition to the bulk of his fan base. I just would like I I wouldn't yeah. want I wouldn't want to take that job then if if I'm coming yeah. in not 
if I'm coming in and I don't know for sure I'm making a change that the fans are clamoring for, then I don't want to be in that position. I'm right with you. Yeah, and it's going to happen. There, there, to me, there's no shot. There's no shot that at the end of the day with this school, you talk about this sport at USC with the, the state of the union of kind of where the fan base is at. Uh, we've talked about it in the last podcast with it kind of being – the symbol of like a new decade for this university, that kind of thing. It just, it all kind of seems to be pointing towards a change. And uh, I think SC was a good football team this year, but I don't think they, they're, they're not elite. And uh, at a school like SC, that's the standard. Yeah. And, and if we go back a month, what I said after the Oregon game, when I felt that that was really kind of, kind of an ending for this era, that game, the way it played out, it kind of being the end of their Pac-12 hopes this year. I said there's nothing else on this schedule that can overcome this. what's already happened. Like nothing's gonna, If you beat Cal big and UCLA big, it's not going to sway the overall view of the season. And that, that's what's happening is they are taking care of business and they are winning these games, uh, at least last week convincingly, and, and we'll see what happens this week. But if that's how I felt then, that's how I still feel now, like – how much does pounding on a bad Cal and a bad UCLA team change the overall sentiment that fans don't feel this program is on the brink of competing for national championships or that it can't that it can't close the gap with the current regime? That's that's what yeah. I go back to. I Yeah, I, no, and I think yeah. I think it, it also start I mean it really started from Clay Helton's like first game as the full-time head coach. I mean, you talk about 2016, that first start, uh, my first start, like Alabama. I mean, you get b- doors blown off, and it felt like it was always an uphill climb from there. And then when, when Darnold came, it felt like any success that Clay had was because of Darnold. And don't right. get me wrong, I, I, I totally get the stat lines, and I've seen those before, and so I totally get how people make that connection. But then from there, it felt, I mean, it felt like last year was kind of his – his moment to prove things, and when you turn to a eighteen-year-old uh, senior in high school to kind of lead your program, I think the ceiling's only so high with that. And then, sure enough, this year was kind of make or break year. And uh, Ryan, we've talked about it all all the year. If, if JT stays healthy, it's probably a different segment. It's probably a different season, and it's just kind of crazy when. I just took 30 seconds to explain his tenor there, and it's not necessarily the worst thing in the world, but just breaks and goes away. That's that's life. That's nature. That's the nature of kind of how things go. But definitely, I think we'll look back on just what a goof. Like, I mean, we can talk about this later, but uh, just what a goofy four years. You talk about like coming on the back end of sanctions. I mean, to have a first round top five NFL quarterback to make it to two BCS bowl games, that whole deal to only get fi- and then have all the injuries and whatnot and all that to get fired. I think big picture, we'll kind of look back and kind of say, well, that uh, there's a lot of a lot of positives, but man, that kind of kind of lined up to maybe the not not the best of uh, of of tenors for for Clay Helton at SC. Yeah, I think if someone is looking at this with no attachment to the situation, is looking at this cold and looking at the numbers and everything they might be surprised that moves being made if you made the decision to keep them last year and they go eight and four this year with a chance to go nine and four with the bowl game they might be surprised but everyone who's ingrained in it here knows that it's beyond those numbers again i i don't want to just be piling on here you know clay's a great person he's been a great representative for the program 
and I give him a lot of credit for how he's handled this down the stretch here. He, he, he has not changed. He has been him. He has been positive. His team is fed off that. They have not quit at all. Whatever happened last year down the stretch has not happened this year. He's kept them bought in. When everyone is talking about their coach being fired, and, and these guys get asked about it at practice. All this week people were being asked about, the players were about, how, how's Clay handled this and this and that. And they've kept their focus and played hard. So give him credit. Here's what Clay Helton said Thursday in his final comments before this game. He said, what the future holds, that's for smarter men than me. My job is to go out there, compete like hell against UCLA, and worry about the moment. So that's kind of the, the mindset he's had through this whole second half of the season. Yeah, and I think we in, in most USC – channels and podcasts it's just a uh, get all over clay all the time kind of thing and it's usually very negative and I think we took a, a probably a more positive outlook but don't get me wrong I mean I'm, I'm still I'm still of the camp of the reality is the standard at SC is where Alabama Clemson uh, Ohio State are and SC's not there Clay Helton's job was to get SC there he did not do that so I think that the criticism is fair the criticism is valid I just think I don't know the points we brought up or at least worth bringing up just because one it's probably something different you're probably not hearing this on every SC site but I think it also puts things into perspective a little bit of kind of like all right so where are things at is this really as bad as we think what's the future looking like we've we've talked about how optimistic it is but uh yeah, I think you can only circle this wagon so many times. We all kind of know where we net out with it, and now it's just a matter of seeing how the UCLA game goes, seeing what happens the week after with Mike Bone and his decision. But we all know uh, we all know where uh, me and you net out with that. <laughs> yeah, that was well said, though, and that's the whole point is that we just want to keep everything in perspective and, and try and offer full perspective at all times. Uh, just a final note, you know, I know everyone's going to be waiting to see what happens on Monday. Again, their team banquet is Sunday night. So don't expect any announcement or anything to happen Sunday. Monday's the telling day. And if you saw Mike Bone's comments to the LA Times earlier this week, when he said he's not in any rush, he doesn't want to rush into a decision, a lot of people took that to mean that this could not be coming Monday. A decision, whatever the decision is, could be delayed. And the only thing I would say there is that Yes, if, if USC wins, they're still technically in the hunt for the Pac-12 title, needing Utah to lose. But if this decision is going to hinge on a Utah-Colorado game in Salt Lake City, then that's misguided. That should not be the basis for this evaluation and decision. Whatever your decision is should be made before some game happening in Salt Lake City a week later. So. Yeah, I think the decision itself will be made by then. It's just a matter of whether we uh, we know about it. Whether I mean, Fair. under that scenario, uh, under that scenario, if Mike Bone was waiting to see, hey, if there was that outside shot, we're in the Pac-12 championship, then you probably would want Clay Helton, no matter what, just to kind of keep the camaraderie of the team. Versus if he's already ch- turned the chapter, I, I mean, I totally can return the page. I, I totally can see that as well. But yeah, to me, if I'm being honest, man, that uh, that Sunday night banquet is fishy to me. I mean. In every sports banquet I've been a part of, I mean, it's it's a good good chunk after the last game, not 24 hours, um, which make of that what you will, but uh, that one to me is a head-scratcher a little bit. Yeah. All right, well, we'll see what happens. Great breakdown of the game, Max. Uh, we will definitely come back and, and do some end-of-season stuff. Uh, not end-of-season, there's obviously a bowl game, but into the regular season stuff. It's been fun all season, though. I've enjoyed having you on. I know the listeners have. And we will uh, connect soon.
Sounds good. Yeah, thanks for listening all all uh, all year long, guys. Hopefully, yeah, we'll get a little uh, season end breakdown, and uh, it was a fun ride. And no, appreciate it, Ryan. It was fun.